Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, and my co-host, as always, is Aaron Cameron. Our guest today is Mark Feeder. He's President Canada at Avison Young. So he's got oversight for a brokerage and a broker he's involved with from the very early days. So it should be a very interesting discussion about growing this baby into the full-size adult that it is now. I remind our listeners, of course, we are going to do an after show afterwards. Don't forget to stay tuned after the theme music goes. But welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you, Adam, Aaron, and it's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for the invite. So just to jump and touch more into your bio, 31 years at Avis and Young, that is truly exceptional. And you saw it right from the start. If you can take us back to the beginning of Avis and Young, you know, what coffee shop were you sitting in when you had the first conversation to get involved? I would love to hear the backstory. Well, that's an interesting one. Myself, Robin and White, and Ted Avison, one of my great mentors, retired now, of course. Robin is still with us and working hard on our capital markets group. It was a desire to get out and, in our minds, start a what we call the full-service real estate company with the full breadth of services, not just focused on brokerage. And that's kind of how it all started. That was in 1989. And Robin White always likes to say, and he coined the phrase, is we started one minute after the peak going into the doldrums of the 1990s. But honestly, that wasn't a bad time to start your business. And frankly, it's kind of a little bit like the environment we're in today. I mean, if you were starting today, you would certainly be conservative and you would run a sharp operation, which we did in the early days. But believe me, we can tell you lots of stories. We learned a lot through what we call a very difficult period. How many defaulted mortgage workouts did you do for banks in the first five years of your business? They kept us in business. We can come back to this, but we dug out our old go-to-market materials, wondering whether you guys could probably tell me better what's going on in your loan portfolio, but really looking at maybe resurrecting those service lines. And the thing that we did well in those days is we had valuation. They would go in and help a lender understand what the value of the building was. We went in and took control of a building by maybe having to lock the doors from the owner, whatever it might be, and torn the rents and do all that. We put into place leasing strategies if they had vacancy problems at the time. And our capital markets experts would come in and sell the building when we thought that the timing was right for that. So the full service approach really put us in a good position to get through those lean years in the early 90s. And so what point would it have really have taken off? I mean, just for anybody who's not familiar with the history of real estate, the big crash came in the early 90s. And the, I know the big phrase then was stay alive to 95. That is kind of when things turned around. So when did it really shift? You know, How did that grow the business? How did you change your business plan? You said that it wasn't bad learning that environment, but you must have had a smile on your face when things got back to stabilize. We had two expansion offices planned for the year that we started later that year. That didn't start for two years later when we added our Vancouver office. So there was a lot of delay in the plan, but I would tell you that I think things really turn around around 97, 98. If you worked hard during that time frame, you made money and we just kept it simple and kept our head down and we got through it quite well. I think that it started to ramp up as technology sector took off the whole downtown West, at least in the GTA. That piece, you know, was a bit of a surprise and how that grew. And listen, that's how Allied was born. And so it really took off from there through that period. You know, Mark, maybe as we go through the timeline, can we just talk about sort of the suite of products you offered 
and have added or changed or taken away. So like back then, were you doing basically all full service appraisals, leasing, brokerage? And has it changed since then? Or maybe talking about the mid 90s as it's picked up, is that when you started to maybe get momentum and add different services? Yeah, I think the answer, the best answer to that is that we had certain markets, the major markets that had the full breadth of services. But let me tell you something about the history of Avis and Young. It started as a brand with separate ownerships in Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, BC. So fast forward to 2007, because in the early 2000s, the principles, and that's the biggest difference between us and probably most of our competitors, is that it's a principle-based organization. And even back in the early to mid-2000s, we were about 45 to 50 principles across the country, but all owning separate pots. As a partnership, we got together and discussed the benefits of merging it all together and creating a balance sheet that we could go and grow the organization, invest in a stronger presence in some of the markets where we needed that and get things going. And we got really close, but we didn't quite get there. We had an affiliation with Grubb and Ellis in the U.S. at the time. Mark Rose was the U.S. CEO for that company. And I had a very good relationship with Mark because I was the liaison for the affiliation with the U.S. We started talking. As it turns out, Mark's company, Ellis ended up being sold. It was a publicly traded company. He basically said to me, you know, you have your annual meeting, which was going to be in January in Edmonton. And I know that he was interested in us because I said, please come anyway and talk to us about what you see in our company and it'd be a great meeting. He came in mid-January in Edmonton. I can tell you it was very cool. Anyway, I'm going to fast forward. Mark made us a proposal. Some of our principals were very on board to get something going. He became our CEO. We restructured the company, I think, in about three months, meaning we merged all the entities together. I think we raised 9 or $11 million amongst the principals to invest, and we got started on our growth programs. So we were $50 million company, 45 principals. Now we're a billion-dollar company, and we have, I think we're pushing over 600 principals on a worldwide basis. In between all that, of course, there's a lot of steps, and I'd be happy to go through any of those with you. I'm curious, you talked about the Avison side. Is this post-Avison Young creation, or what was the time frame of that, and how did that come about? That was when the Avison and Young came together, mid-90s. We operated till mid-2000s, and then in 07, well, we started discussions. 08, 09 is when we really got started on our expansion plans. So most of that growth has happened since 2009. And today, it's a very different company, but it very much is based on and still is a principle-based company. And people often say, well, what does that mean exactly? And what it means is that we have 600 plus people that actually have skin in the game and they're our best people. And it just changes the entire dynamic of the organization entirely. I'm president of Canada But I like to tell people I serve at the pleasure of our principals across Canada and globally. And it's a very different dynamic. We're organized differently. Yes, we have a board of directors. We pretty much operate as a publicly traded company in terms of the level of reporting that we have internally. When you have 600 plus shareholders, you have that obligation to provide that. We have an executive committee, which I sit on. But each country has an executive committee. 
each office has a principal-based executive committee. And each office has principal meetings where they voice their ideas and concerns and whatever they might have. You know, and typically they're done on a either monthly to quarterly basis, depending on the office and the size of the office. It's a very different operating environment. So when I walk into the office in the morning, I'm not the boss. I've got people, they call me overhead, right? I don't <laughs> <laughs> So, Mark, before we talk about the different operations throughout different countries, I'm curious, what were you doing throughout this period on a personal level as far as your responsibilities and the different departments that you had oversight on? At the time of merger? Yeah, or just maybe throughout we oh, got okay. up to the, sort of the late 2000s. So what did you do for the last 20 years? What have your roles been and what things have you been focused on in the marketplace? So I started off in office leasing and I uh, did some investment sales. I was a broker for 20 years. I loved it. and still consider myself a broker, at least a revenue producer. And the reason I say that is because I think that's one of the key ingredients of being a leader is understanding understanding. the brokerage side and being sympathetic to the challenges associated with being a broker and also understanding the psyche and frankly, to be of maximum service to our people. So that would take me into the early 2000s. At that time, I did play a player coach role for a number of years because, you know, we were of a size where we didn't really need full-time management. And then from that, we decided that if we're going to grow the company, focus on acquisitions and recruiting to the degree that we wanted to, you know, I had to make a change. And that's when I went into full-time management position. So I was always the president of the Ontario operations. Then I basically moved to running the GTA, then I ran Eastern Canada, then I ran Canada entirely. First as COO and then as president. Let's get into the more recent challenges in the market as a leader. I know you're leading a team, a very large team, into COVID, and everybody's coming off of a number of great years. So you could have a number of people who are experienced and competent and good who have never seen a down cycle, but you've seen a couple. So when COVID first hit and brokerage activity really did dry up for a period of time, obviously it has restarted, but there was a couple of months where, you know, when I spoke to brokers, they were not doing much other than trying to figure out how to try and reach half their target for the year. So what did you do as a leader to carry your team into that very negative environment? That may be a two-part question. First, I'll say that as an organization of principals and a management team, we got out very quickly. We got out in front of the whole COVID thing very quickly. We shut down, I think, faster than anybody. But we also went into cost containment mode very, very early and came up with a very solid plan. In fact, you know, our partners, one of our private equity partners that owns piece of Davis and Young, amongst all their portfolio companies, they felt that we moved the quickest. And I think that that set a tone of comfort, I think, with a lot of our people, meaning that we're on very good financial footing and everything was going to be fine. And it allowed them to really focus on the business. Our best people are still making money. And that's always the way it's been. I saw that in the early 90s. I saw that in the tech rack. I saw that in 08, 09. They work hard, they work smart, and they got out in front of it. There is an element of a number of our young people that they have never seen anything like this. And even if they were around in 2009, I tell them like 2009 was a blip compared to, you know, the early 90s. 
So what you're there, you're there for them and you're supporting them as best you can. You almost over-communicate and make sure that you're there for them. And one of our big concerns at Avis and Young is not to forget about the mental health aspects of what we're dealing with. We've probably done a half a dozen major sessions with mental health professionals, making sure that they understand the environment that they're in, what to watch for, and more importantly, if there's a problem, they know where to get access to the kind of help that they might need. So that was really important to us. Lots of video messages, Mark Rose, I don't even know how many, three a month, four a month at least, staying in front of our people, guiding them, giving them the kind of encouragement that they need. And that, you're right, the first two or three months were really tough. The really fun thing about the last few months is we've had some really great successes and people feed off that. And when they see others having that success, they want to have the success too. And they kind of get back at it and it refreshes them. So it's a great collegial atmosphere here. So we thrive on that. But Zoom meetings and being away from the office does have its challenges. We don't like dwelling too much on COVID. I think we always say this, but I think people are just sick and tired of it because we're all sitting at home. There's no way to escape it. You're in a permanent reminder of the scenario, of the situation we're in. So maybe one last question, then we'll get on to more interesting topics. But it's November 26th. So the Toronto Peel area just went into another lockdown, so to speak. Not quite the same as March, but what are you worried about right now? You know, you wake up in the middle of the night, like what's keeping you up? What's the concern? It really feels like it's another six months at least of this work from home environment, as you indicated, a bit stressful. So how are you as the leader of the organization thinking about what to do next? How do you keep your team motivated? How do you keep your clients engaged? I mean, there's lots of things that I'm assuming you are, I don't want to say worried, but are your main focus. Those are really good questions and they're tough. What keeps me up and what worries me, I guess it's the unknown and the fact that we're kind of back. We were sort of building some momentum, I think, and that was feeling good. But frankly, I think it's brighter than that. I think we're going to get back. I think Q1 is going to be way better. COVID or no COVID, vaccine or no vaccine. And the reason is that we're really learning how to live with this and we're getting better and better at it. You know, I think the vaccine is going to help. We use the Cleveland Clinic as our advisors globally, and they help us with our protocols. And they're big believers that there's probably as many as 10 vaccines that are going to be ready in Q1. So they think you're going to see behavioral changes into Q2, Q3. I think that too, as we get through this. The good news is there's kind of an end date, but there's going to be residuals to deal with, no question on an ongoing basis after, and that'll be part of it. Motivating the team is really important. We're trying to be very careful right now. Like We want people to come back to the office. I think everybody wants to go back to the office. That's not the question. We came out right away and said, don't come in till the end of this year. Well, guess what? It's the end of the year. And we're now having to make a call on that. And I can't preempt anything, but we will be communicating with all our people at the beginning of December. I think it's going to be very reasonable approach to what the next quarter is going to look like. But, you know, we build momentum. People realize you got to get back to business. Business development, we have had a major shift. I call it a shift because pivot seems to be used all the time. And, you know, it's kind of, okay, you're pivoting too? Great. We're making major investments right now in our people. And where is that showing up? We have fantastic centers of excellence being developed both marketing, 
where we're developing new go-to-market tools. We took the opportunity to completely change our branding, which is being implemented real-time as we speak. We hired a president of professional services, Sheila Botting, to come on board at a time when everybody wants to talk about workplace strategy. She's there. In her first month, I think we developed 150 new opportunities with clients that want to talk about reorganizing their space and what does this all mean, right? Everybody wants to know what it means. And so she's down there in all of our brokers as a partner. And so I think that's been well received. And the other place that we're making major investment is in technology and data. We hired a very bright young person to run. He's our chief and innovation officer. His name is John Sakaitis. John is developing what we call our Avant system. And it's a incredible database that not only, you know, you drive your availabilities for office, industrial, retail, et cetera, but we are layering on hundreds of data points on top so that we can help our clients with predictive analytics. So all in all, our salespeople, our brokers have an incredible amount of material, new things to go to our clients with. And by the way, it's what our clients want, more importantly. It's what they're asking for. And we decided that our leadership team, we could never have done this without COVID because it really allowed us to focus as a team and actually get some of these things done. They've been there in the past, but you know how priorities go. Your distractions are all over the place, and including business opportunities, which they always would govern You know where you're going to spend your time. So this COVID situation has really allowed us to refocus and bring the tools to our professionals that they need. You're not wrong in that the silver lining to COVID is it did accelerate a number of changes that were already underway and forced everybody to really adopt best practices in a very short period of time that otherwise, I mean, real estate is not known for its rapid adoption of any new concepts. So COVID does kind of give you a kick in the butt to get moving. I've got one more related work from home question before we move on to a new topic. So we are in an audio format, but I'll describe to our listeners what I'm seeing. I'm seeing Mark in his office and the backdrop is the Fairmont Tower. And if he was to tilt his camera to the right just a little bit, we could probably see the first national office where Aaron's been in, but I have not. Do you feel any sort of, maybe pressure is the wrong word, but motivation as a leader or real estate practitioner to get back to the office, maybe ahead of the general population? Do your office leasing guys bug you to get back into the office, fly the flag that it's time to go back and maybe get some leasing activity going? That's an excellent question. And part of it is leadership. Part of it is I'm no different than anybody else. I have my routine. It'd be nice if the traffic was like this a couple of years from now, but that's not going to happen. There's an ecosystem in our business. It's been highly disruptive. And I feel like I'm just doing my little bit to try and repair that ecosystem and get back. You know, the reality is in downtown Toronto, with the banks sitting at home and frankly, everybody else, it's very, very difficult to imagine, you know, getting things going until we get some meaningful return to office. So we're very encouraging. We've got a very safe environment. We invested in some high technology, some facial recognition and temperature sensors. And I can tell you that this office, in terms of people wearing masks and adhering to the the rules, it's been unbelievable. You know, and I think that's going to be with us for a little while. But I do wish for our ecosystem to return and get back to business. And I also worry about, you know, the damage that's being done, not to the big banks. And there's a lot of companies where their top line revenue hasn't been affected at all. 
right? Like not a big deal, but you know, the path system, you know, there's 2000 businesses in the back path. They're not going to make it a lot of them. That's the sad part. We've classified it or we've heard it classified as a service oriented crisis that we're in, you know, the health crisis. It's going to exacerbate some of the challenges that society had in the first place when it comes to income inequality and all that kind of stuff. I mean, Right now, again, November 26th, whatever the date is, you know, we're hearing uproars about why is Walmart an essential service, but, you know, the local grocer isn't. I think the government is listening and going to change things. But we started there saying, let's not talk about COVID very much and we're dwelling on the current. Let's move on to more positive things. You know, Adam and I are fortunate enough to have these conversations with individuals that are allowed to sit 30,000 feet up and look down and think in a macro perspective that, yeah, COVID is awful. Everyone's changing that, but it is going to be over at some point in the future. It is not a long-term thing to find long-term and you know, it might be two or three years, but it's not going to be much longer than that. I think you have the privilege of thinking long-term, 5, 10, 15 years. So if it was January 20th or you know, pick a date before COVID, what were you thinking about Avison Young's trajectory? And again, pretending that COVID doesn't exist if you can. Where are you guys going? What does the growth pattern look like? What things are you doing? And maybe under the context, Mark, of how you differentiate yourselves from your competitors. What I think about, and I'm sure my partners and our principal partners are thinking about as well, is how big is big enough? Because we've grown our company to a billion-dollar company. Where do we go from here? You've heard this expression before. We don't need to be the biggest. We just want to be the best. So how do we serve our clients the best? I always kind of think about it as like, how do we become the McKinsey of the commercial real estate services industry? And what does that mean? So we put a lot of thought into that through COVID. There we go again. We're right back there, but we haven't slowed down. We've bought companies. We've invested. We bought a technology company called Trust recently that provided us with the essential piece of our technology platform and also in a space that we think is going to grow. And that's, you know, flexible office. We're going to make some announcements in North America for some fairly significant acquisitions. So, you know, we're continuing to grow and our eyes are on growth still. And I don't know how big a window we have here, but if you think about where most of our growth came from and, you know, in the time frame, in a relatively short time frame, and that was right after the 2008-2009 downturn, it was an incredible time to go and buy companies. It's starting to prove out again. And, you know, we're finding that recruiting, we're getting a lot of attention to recruiting again. It's our intention to try and take advantage of this. I just don't know if we're talking about six months or 18 months of this. I suspect it's closer to six months than it is 18 months. Just that window is going to be fairly tight as we recover. And I think there's a ton of pent up demand that's going to really allow us to do some catch up, maybe late into next year. Mark, do you have a sense of where the market's going to go? Just trying to project forward. And this is a bit of a COVID theme. I'm sorry. Clearly, that's what we're talking about today. But are you optimistic that, you know, office net rents are going to basically return to where they were pre-COVID very quickly? I know retail is being impacted. But, you know, when I talk to some retail specialists, they think that it's just going to evolve quickly and we'll be back to where we were. What do you think the implications are of this current environment on sort of the fundamentals of real estate? Pick an asset class if that makes it easier for you. Well, I mean, if you pick office, I mean, and you talk globally, there's going to be softness in the office market for probably two to three years. Getting back, I mean, keep in mind that, you know, if you talk about the GTA, more specifically downtown Toronto, 
I don't know that people, you kept hearing about rising rates, but I don't think people have a really good understanding other than the people right in our business, how much they went up in a very short period of time. I think there's going to be a lot of challenges. I don't even think we've scratched the surface yet. And the reason for that is because our corporate clients that we talk to every day, they have no idea you know, where this is all going. So they don't know if they should be taking less space, more space, the same amount of space, reconfiguring their space. There's a lot of unknowns. And, and, what, and what should they pay for that space? Exactly, exactly. And I think that well, obviously we're trying to help them with that thought pattern. The banks, they're big occupiers of space. Are they going to peel back? Are more people going to you know, sit at home and work successfully from home? I think it's going to take 12 to 24 months to really figure out what the, the direction is. The amount of sublease space that's been coming to the market, relatively speaking to the size of the market, it's not an alarming number. I've seen some studies suggesting it's the highest amount of sublease space we've ever seen. Well, that's true, except that the denominator... When the last time we had a lot of sublease space, you know, it was a lot smaller than it is today. So meaning that there's an overall impact on the market. It's not that different. The other thing that people can't lose sight of, but just because we're in COVID, is what was happening to office space before COVID started. Flexible office, unassigned seating, technology playing a part in how much space. That was all coming to bear. And some of it just got fairly, during COVID, got accelerated. So I think that it's going to take a little bit of time. And I really think not a lot's going to be decided until we got bums in seats. I also talked to CEOs, and there's not one that says that they're abandoning office space in any great degree. Where they can make adjustments right now, they will, That where it's obvious, where people can work from home. But as most of them say, like, think about all of us getting into the business. I bet at First National it was exactly the same. What did you do when you came in? You came in, you wanted to be mentored by somebody that you respected, and you wanted to build out your network. How do you build out a network sitting at home? It's impossible. So it's a kind of a ludicrous thought or thesis that things are going to change dramatically. I don't believe it. Well, to your point about indecision, for sure, that's been the predominant path most businesses have been on. If a brokerage dollar is going to be earned, a real estate agent is going to earn some money, generally decisions have been made. That's acquisition, disposition, new lease, sublease. You know, they've committed to a course of action. So if you're, you know, right now we're near the end of the year, I'm sure you're doing forecasting for next year. As, as a proxy for decisions being made, what's your anticipation for brokerage volumes next year? That is a very good question. Do you want me to tell you how we budgeted? <laughs> <laughs> we're not looking for hard numbers, but just an indication would be good. <laughs> okay. I think, you know, the leadership took the view that we needed to be reasonable. So we certainly took a discount on how we see things going in the first six months of next year. But better, we're not returned to normal by any stretch, but we're definitely doing better than we were. And I expect that to continue through the first six months. And then I think that through the back half of the year, I believe that we're going to see some catch up. And that's kind of how we've adjusted our numbers in our view. Keeping in mind that you know, 25% globally, Avis and Young, is only about 54 57% brokerage. And the rest is, you know, reoccurring revenue through property management, valuation, and other services. In Canada, that's more like 25-75. So the impact of brokerage is huge. But nevertheless, we've been growing our property management valuation businesses quite successfully through this piece and fairly robustly, I must say. 
And we've got a number of acquisitions that will help us there as well. So we've got some buffer against the drop in brokerage. As we build out the company, it's our view that we'd like to see 50% of our revenues coming from brokerage and 50% of our revenues from other service lines. And that's not at the expense of brokerage, if you know what I mean, meaning that we're growing the entire pie as we go through that. Mark, we're almost at the end here. So I got one last question for you that I kind of teased earlier. Maybe just talk about the global expansion. What markets are you in? What markets are you having the most success in? And what markets are on the radar for continued growth? That's a really good, great question. Our first priority is to continue to strengthen the top markets in the U.S. That'd be New York, Northern California, Southern California, Chicago, Atlanta, Dallas. Those are the kinds of markets that we will prioritize our investment dollars. In the U.K., we made an acquisition of an incredibly fine company in the GVA, and their goal is to grow in London. We're obviously a force in London, but there's lots of room to grow, especially relative to the size of our competitors there. And then it's you know European expansion. Germany, for sure. We're looking at France. We're announcing in Spain. We've got some things going on. I will tell you that if there's an opportunity to do affiliation in the Far East, we will do that. We did that in Korea, and we've had a fantastic relationship with a firm in Seoul. So that's kind of the plan. And so it's really a focus on Europe and European expansion and the major markets in the U.S. In Canada, it's tuck-in, it's building out certain service lines and filling some gaps. We're doing pretty well here. Well, Mark, I want to thank you for taking the time to answer some of the questions from us. It was a great conversation. Really appreciated your insight. Wanted to thank First National for powering the podcast. Thanks to the Real Estate Forum for the partnership. Again, thanks, Mark, for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you and appreciate you guys doing it. You're doing a great job. Thanks very much. Reminder, our listeners, we're about to do the after show. So stay tuned after the jingle and Adam and I will uh, digest the conversation that Mark, Adam and I just had. Thanks again, Mark. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show. As Aaron mentioned, we're going to digest the conversation we just had with our guest, Mark Feeder. Interesting conversation. And definitely, it's a different structure than most of the other brokerages. That was one of my big takeaways from that is a lot of the other brokerages structured very similarly, publicly traded, similar systems. And then Avis and Young, it's definitely in its own little universe. We didn't actually talk about culture, but you kind of got the feeling just the way that he was talking, the fact that he'd been there for 30-something years, that some of the founders and early principals are all still there. It's got to be one of those places where it feels like a family, right? Where there's a you know just an attraction to it because of the tenureship that people stay long term. I mean, I found his just demeanor, right? Very, I don't know if the word is colloquial, but just very friendly, very easygoing. Like he wasn't a power hungry president. You know what I mean? Like I'm reaching here, but I don't think he's ever raised his voice before in a meeting or anything like that. Like he seems to be pretty even keeled. Even as if his young employees can email us privately to tell us if he has, but yes, very even keeled. I definitely got that impression as well. But that's why it's funny because I mean, he talked about launching into a downturn at the time. It must have just been alarm bells going off. You know, you're into a new company and then you run headlong into the worst real estate recession that anybody can remember. And now, you know, 31 years later, it's probably pretty easy to just casually throw it out there that, yeah, we launched and then a minute later, everything collapsed and we got through it. But at the time, that must have been quite the experience. He even mentioned in there as well, you know, Ally was created then, and we just actually had Michael Emery on recently. He discussed that as well because he also earned his stripes during a downturn. 
Yeah, there's a theme there. I mean, I can't remember all the guests that have had that same experience, but there's a lot where that period in the early 90s taught them the lessons they needed to learn to become successful. So presumably there are a whole bunch of us in our early careers learning the lessons we need to learn during COVID to be successful. And we'll be interviewed by the next podcast asking us about what we learn. Not you and I, listeners, the royal <laughs> we, so to speak. You and I are going to be doing this for the rest of our lives, right? We'll be doing the interviews, yeah. Uh, the other concept you talked about, and we didn't get too far into it, is player coach. And for anybody not familiar, it basically means when you're functioning as a salesperson as well as leading a sales team. I know that other groups that have done that, it can be tricky waters to navigate because the sales teams, there is an element of competition for business even amongst an internal sales team. And now you've got your leadership also competing. And I know that that can be a little tricky sometimes. I mean, obviously they manage it, but I have heard other groups say that that can be tough. Back to just my impression of Mark, because he seems like the kind of guy that would have done that with respect and gone about it in the right way to make sure that he's not pissing anybody off. Because yeah, you're right. Like that player coach concept can probably be really, really tricky at times. And the other one that struck me was having mental health advisors. I thought that was very forward-looking, very progressive. And you know, I applaud them. There can be a little bit of machismo in the business, so maybe it's not bad to address that, that people's mental health probably is suffering. Even at a low level, everybody's just carrying the weight of this more than they would have been prior to COVID. I mean, we've talked about this before with other sort of leaders of brokerages that they're probably feeling it more than the majority of the real estate community, right? Like if you're an asset owner, I mean, maybe you're not acquiring as much or you're not doing as many transactions, but you've still got assets under management. You've got to continue to improve or manage. Clearly, as you and I know on the lending side, there's still a ton of business going around, specifically to First National. Of course, we're having another banner year. But I think on the broker side, if there are transactions, I'm clearly if you're in a leasing agent, a lot of those are 100% commission roles. So guys have gone from a presumably a pretty steady income stream to zero very, very quickly. Not to mention all the other people that keep the machine running, right? That there's no machine or the machine's kind of not running at the high octane it was previously. So I mean, good on him for, can't remember if he said this on air or off air, but maybe it was before we went recording, but they've been working very, very, very hard to maintain their level of employment and not pull the cord too early and let people go. And I think that's important. And that back to that mental health concept, if you've got not very much to do and you're sitting there and go worried about your job, I mean, that would be harder you know, than I think working from home, but at least you're really busy with something to do, right? So we did talk about a little bit, of course, it's the indecision does not drive new opportunities for brokers to make money. Michael Betzalel spoke to us from JLL right in the peak of the COVID insanity that's probably been around May. And he said, yeah, he's really feeling it because at that point, everything stopped. And I fully understand why. If you're a real estate investor and it's March 21st and they just shut down the NBA, yeah, you're probably going to wait on that decision. You know, Maybe not you're out of the game, but you're definitely going to sit and wait. And that'd be tough. 100% commission sales business and every client you're talking to it was about to pull the trigger on something, definitely would come to a full stop. No, that's a tough one. I also should backfill the story about Michael Betzalel. We did catch up with him later and found out that a lot of the previous deals had come back to life and had resumed. So if anybody's worried about him, he is doing yeah, deals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he was depressed that day. I remember that because he held up his phone at one point to us and it had you know that John Hopkins tracker of COVID. And we had just peaked 1 million worldwide COVID cases. We were all like, oh my God, there's a million people with COVID. And now you look at that and like, that was just the beginning. And we had no idea how much worse it was going to get. I think I saw a headline the other day, we're at 60 currently. So to mark the moments in time. One other thing we talked about, it probably bears explanation if you're not from Toronto. It is a very interesting case of subsector real estate being really punished. 
is we refer to the path. And the path is the world's largest underground mall. It's all underneath Bay Street, University Street, all the downtown office towers, and extends north into condo land everywhere. It's this massive underground mall. I don't even think it's the largest underground mall, and I may be wrong, but I thought it was the largest continuous retail space in the world. Not even underground. Like just from a per square footage, the amount of distance you can walk, it's the largest in the world. Yeah, I mean, maybe we should Google this. Yeah, so somebody <laughs> Google it, email yeah. it wrong, yeah. It is massive. You can just walk forever and use a counter retail to retail to retail. And it's fed by all the office towers just brimming over with people with good jobs who all want to get their dry cleaning done, go shoe shopping at lunch, buy lunch, all of that. And the rents down there get really crazy because they're all very little small stalls. The rents can get as high as 200 bucks per square foot because these renters are guaranteed just a fire hose of consumers being sprayed all by their front door Monday to Friday. Very few of them stay open in the evening. Very few are open in the weekends. It's just this parade of office workers going by. And of course, now that parade of office workers are all sitting at home in their jammy jams and not buying anything. And you're carrying very expensive rent with not diminished income. You're not doing curbside pickup. There's no real B plan. It's just very expensive rent in combination with a complete stop of your income. I cannot imagine when Aaron and I go back to work, I can't imagine who's still going to be there. You know, it's going to be a bloodbath down there. It's going to take years, I'm sure. And we try hard not to stay clear of COVID, you know, for our regular listeners, but this one just seemed to be constantly kind of coming back to that topic. And maybe it is because, you know, the brokerages aren't more heavily hit, but, and we haven't really focused on it recently, just the amount of damage that this will ultimately occur. Again, it's November 26th or whatever it is. And we're in lockdown as a 28 day lockdown, it takes us to the end of December. I mean, I can't foresee it not lasting through January, February, March, at least in some form or format until April or May when weather gets better and people start going outside again. So that's four more months of really poor, poor fundamentals for office and retail in particular anyway. And I think people survived the first lockdown. They survived the summer when the numbers were down. Can they survive a winter again with no activity, no consumers, particularly the restaurants, right? Like there is some challenges coming and I hate to be the negative Nancy. I guess that's the natural lender's perspective, but I feel concerned anyway that there's more gray clouds on the horizon, unfortunately. There's some silver linings to those gray clouds, sure, but there's still think we're going to look back on this in five years and read the textbook and it's going to be, yeah, you know, that period from November to April, that was the worst part of it. I hope I'm wrong, but it just feels that way right now anyway. I feel like we should not end the podcast here because that's a real... No, sorry. I always do on. this. I don't, I don't know why we do this after show. It's just Aaron's opportunity to rant about all the terrible things in the world. <laughs> I guess we'll talk about something a little more positive. There's a lot of other asset classes are doing well and will continue to do well. And we live in a country with uh, strong government support. Hopefully, most of these businesses can get through. And by all market predictions, we should bounce back quickly once we get the green lights resume some semblance of normal life. This is not a financial crisis. This is not a real estate crisis. And you know those are the primary functions that we're engaged in. So the bounce back should be pretty quick. Thanks for saving that, Adam. <laughs> Clearly, he's the sales guy. I'm the credit guy. He's always positive. <laughs> I'm always negative. Mark mentioned, I think he said 10 or 12 vaccines that are kind of coming down the pipeline around the world. I mean, that's probably, I saw Turkey just announced they've got one. You know, there's lots of others, multiples in Canada coming in the US is working hard. So yeah, I mean, who knows, right? All of a sudden there could be hundreds of millions and millions of vaccines available in January and we'll be sitting in the office by February. I mean, again, who knows, right? So hopefully I'm wrong. I can't wait to podcast in person with you again. I know. It keeps my heart warm <laughs> and cold days. Exactly. So thanks for listening. Thanks for National Power on the podcast. Till next time, take care, everybody. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. 
The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.